The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Welcome to the sequencing of chemotherapy and immunotherapy in advanced prostate cancer present and future conference call. My name is Aletha and I will be your operator for today's call. I will now turn the webinar over to our course director, Dr. Gerard. Thank you. I'd like to welcome the attending, attendees to this fourth webinar uh, into evidence-based clinical management of castration-resistant prostate cancer. My name is Dr. David Gerard. I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin and an associate director at the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center. I'll be moderating today, and I'm joined by two outstanding faculty, uh, Dr. Robert Dreiser, who's the associate director for clinical research and the deputy director at the University of Virginia Cancer Center. He also serves as section head of medical oncology. We're also joined by Dr. Kelly Stratton, who's an assistant professor of urologic oncology at the University of Oklahoma Stevenson Cancer Center. Uh, he did his fellowship training at Memorial Sloan Kettering and has been there for a number of years. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. So our learning objectives today are several fold. Uh, part of the focus uh, of this is really on new knowledge. We'll describe some of the gaps in the knowledge for treatment and sequencing of agents in the management of castration-resistant prostate cancer. We'll identify approved chemotherapeutics and immunotherapy. We'll also talk a fair amount about the indications and contraindications for chemotherapy and immunotherapy in this patient population. We'll identify how these comorbid states impact treatment options. We'll also discuss and assess and manage pain uh, in patients with this disease. And finally, we'll discuss the role of chemotherapy, performance status, and pain medication, uh, management in patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. And we'll move on to our first speaker. This is Dr. Robert Dreiser from the University of Virginia. He'll be speaking on the role of chemotherapy in symptomatic supportive care in patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Dr. Dreiser, welcome. All right, so good evening and thank you. Uh, so we'll move ahead and um, start talking about therapeutic decision-making in patients with metastatic castration-resistant disease. The historical paradigm of patients who progressed on primary testosterone suppression typically was biochemical progression and radiographic progression. Docetaxel was approved in 2004 and basically was associated with significant palliative benefit but relatively modest survival benefit. Now, things have changed over time and as uh, the audience knows uh, with recent randomized studies, we've moved docetaxel leftward into the disease course and some patients receive it in hormone-sensitive disease. Um, docetaxel has, for a while, with the development of agents like abiraterone and dilutamine and radium, got pushed a bit to the right. One of the important things to remember about docetaxel is that from a palliative perspective, it is one of the most active agents that we have. It's not uncommon at all for a patient with symptoms from disease, be it fatigue, loss of appetite, or bone pain, 
to get a cycle of docetaxel, and when they come back three weeks later for a second cycle, feeling a lot better. So the palliative benefit of docetaxel should not be underestimated. That said, in many patients with castration-resistant disease, we tend to use docetaxel a bit later, and again, typically in patients who are emerging with early disease-related symptoms. Let's chat a bit about performance status. So performance status is a sense uh, what's going on with the patient, and part of the reason why it matters is that there is unequivocally good data to say that when we use systemic therapy, that the ability for a patient to respond to that therapy based on the existence of comorbidities or symptoms secondary to the disease, the drug clearance, all the phenom all phenomena associated with systemic administration can change. The Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, or ECOG, performance status is widely used. There are others, including Karnofsky performance status, or WHO. They all are relatively similar. Uh, what you see here is a scale that runs, obviously, from 0 to 5. We obviously don't refer to patients uh, with ECOG 5 frequently, given that they're dead. But basically, ECOG 0 is a patient who's completely asymptomatic. ECOG 1, able to carry out most of their daily activities. And ECOG 2, uh, compromise, but up and around at least half of the day, ECOG 3, just the opposite, in better a chair half a day, and basically bed-bound ECOG 4. And the, the reason this is critical is that when you look at the clinical trials that lead to the drugs that we use, all of them will tell you what the performance status is. So if you look at a study that enrolled patients with ECOG 0 and 1, and you have a patient with an ECOG 3 in front of you, translating the benefit from the trial challenging because those patients actually were not compromised in that way. This is uh, the survival curve from TAX327, which was a large randomized phase three study, and you can see it was published in the New England Journal now um, 14 years ago. And although when you look at the median overall survival, and what this trial did was took three arms, docetaxel administered every three weeks, docetaxel administered weekly, compare, and the third arm was the drug mitoxantrone, which was actually the first chemotherapy drug approved in advanced prostate cancer, and the drug mitoxantrone was approved on the basis of a purely palliative benefit. There was no survival impact. This study actually compared Q3-week docetaxel to mitoxantrone or weekly docetaxel to mitoxantrone, but not to the tutaxane arm. And although there was a modest two-plus-month survival benefit, as noted earlier, this remains a very active therapy. And part of the way you can understand that is that in the last 15 or so years, there have been a dozen phase three trials which have compared drug X versus docetaxel. Every one of those trials has flamed. Docetaxel remains a very important drug in our therapeutic armamentarium. Cabazitaxel is a first cousin of docetaxel. This is an agent that was developed actually relatively quietly. Um, it was active in models of docetaxel resistance. And the pharma company that developed this drug actually conducted five very large phase three trials comparing the drug or, or evaluating the drug in the major cancers, lung cancer, breast cancer, et cetera. Turns out the only trial that was positive was actually prostate cancer. This trial was conducted entirely in Europe, so when the data was presented at ASCO, it was actually uh, a surprise to most U.S. investigators. This is a drug that has positioned itself based on its approval following docetaxel. 
I'm going to show you some data that suggests that that's where it belongs based on additional data. So what you see here is a survival benefit. This drug also has the potential to palliate. It's administered uh, on three-week schedule, just like docetaxel. And here you see both PFS and OS. The difference in toxicity, these are both taxanes. Bacitaxel is a bit more myelosuppressive than docetaxel. Uh, there's neuropathy and myelosuppression associated with both of the drugs. So this is the trial that I was referring to that was uh, published just uh, last year. This was mandated, this study, uh, by the FDA following the approval of cabazitaxel. So what this was was a three-arm study. And what you see is arm A and B, same drug, cabazitaxel, at two different doses. Why does it matter and why was this tested? Uh, cabazitaxel at the dose of 25 per meter, which is still an approved dose, typically requires white blood cell growth factor support. We don't need that growth factor support at 20, so it was a relevant question. And the control arm was docetaxel. So this was for patients with castrate metastatic disease using these drugs up front. And basically, you can't have much more of a negative study than that. So what you see is there was absolutely no difference in any of the arms. So the take-home message from this study is that docetaxel, which of course is a generic, remains a frontline chemotherapeutic with cabazitaxel, a reasonable drug to use following. And when you use cabazitaxel using the 20 milligrams per meter squared, which is a better tolerated dose, doesn't require white, white blood cell growth factor support, is the optimal way to administer the drug. So making decisions in castrate metastatic disease. So among the questions that come up, and then you'll hear people talk, is whether a patient is fit or unfit to receive docetaxel. So fitness for therapy um, is, doesn't have a strict definition, but typically medical oncologists look at patients and try to make clinical judgments. So among the easier ways to make a judgment is not about age, because you, we all see patients who are 85 or 90 who look like they're 70 and act like they're 70, and we have plenty of patients who are 55 and uh, who look like train wrecks. So ECOG-3, I'm in bed or chair more than half the day, probably is a contraindication. Patients with severe neuropathy, remember the taxanes can worsen peripheral neuropathy. In some instances, it is irreversible. Significant liver disease, the taxanes are cleared hepatically, and therefore if you have a patient who has known cirrhosis, uh, you suspect may have cirrhosis based on a pattern of alcohol intake, a history of active hepatitis uh, C or B, uh, docetaxel or cabazitaxel may be challenging because the exact dose modification to give it safely is unclear. In general, docetaxel and cabazitaxel are, is well tolerated. It's been my clinical practice, and I think in most medical oncologists who have experience in treating advanced prostate cancer, we tend to use chemotherapy in patients who have symptoms. And part of the reason for that is, is that there is cumulative side effects of these drugs, which tend to be less of an issue in a patient who has now begun to feel better because you're treating them. So bone pain, fatigue, now that's gone, you're at cycle three, and patient is doing well. If you treat asymptomatic patients, what you tend to see is cumulative fatigue, patients not infrequently have issues with intermittent diarrhea, there are nail bed changes, watery eyes and runny nose, and the, the development of peripheral neuropathy. So it's not to say that patients without symptoms shouldn't be treated, but in general, uh, we tend to use other agents earlier in the disease course. Cycle length. The original trial, the trial that I showed you, picked 10 cycles as part of the trial design. And after its approval, it was commonly 
um, used in this way. Why 10 cycles? Why not 10 cycles? It was 10 cycles. It was, but the point is, is that we're not wedded to 10 cycles. And the reality is, is that most clinicians use shorter schedules, perhaps six cycles, and reevaluate. There's a phenomenon that uh, was used widely before the development of more recent approved drugs where patients might get six cycles of docetaxel, obtain clinical benefit, and then a period of time of observation with reinduction of docetaxel. Many patients responded again to the reinduction, but were spared the cumulative side effects of trying to give somebody 10 cycles. Uh, when to convert to cabazitaxel. So cabazitaxel, again, is a drug that can be used post-docetaxel. Uh, the treatment paradigms in, in castrate-resistant metastatic prostate cancer are rapidly evolving. So there's no cookie-cutter way to discuss it other than to say, in general, cabazitaxel would follow docetaxel, but it may follow other therapies after docetaxel as well. 20 milligrams per meter squared is the new standard. And again, one still needs to be concerned about myelosuppression especially in patients who may have received a fair amount of external beam radiotherapy. Perhaps they received radium-223. So it's something to basically pay attention to. All right, so let's shift gears for the last couple of minutes and just talk about uh, pain management. If you're going to manage advanced prostate cancer, part of the obligation of the clinician is to be able to manage disease-related symptoms. And pain in advanced prostate cancer is obviously very common. So it's part of the deal. You don't get to squirt drugs and shunt the patient for somebody else to manage uh, other symptoms, including bone pain. You can certainly engage colleagues in palliative medicine. Um, uh, we certainly are evolving uh, in an unrelated area in terms of genetic counseling, given the evolving role of genomics. But ultimately, as the treating physician for castrate metastatic prostate cancer, you know, we're responsible for managing pain. So you have to develop a certain comfort level with managing opioids. Uh, one needs to understand it's not about just writing a script or printing a script and giving it to the patient and say, here, take it. The reality is opioids have predictable toxicities. I assure you that if you send the patient home with opioids and say no more, that three days later your, your nurse or your coordinator is going to get a call about obstipation from the opioids. So part of the deal is understanding what the toxicities are and GI toxicity in terms of obstipation, constipation issues, we never grow tolerant to these effects. We grow tolerant to the respiratory impact of opioids, et cetera, but there are certain things that you just have to do in terms of managing opioids. You don't have to use 17 different opioids. You need to get comfortable with a couple of them and be able to understand how to dose them, how to convert to sustained release medication, et cetera, how to, how to choose the patient that additional palliative radiotherapy may make sense, so developing a, a good working relationship with your radiation oncologist is, again, part of um, the entire package of managing advanced prostate cancer. So to try to just give an overview, uh, the classic chemotherapeutics, docetaxel, more recently cabazitaxel, remain integral in the management of patients with both MCRPC, and as you know, docetaxel is revolving in the role of hormone-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, these agents are relatively well tolerated, uh, however, you need some skill and experience to manage these appropriately. Um, chemotherapy drugs can kill people, so one of the things that we have to do is our jobs are to take good care of people and improve um, you know, their life expectancy and their quality of life, so skill and administration is important. If you manage patients with metastatic castration-resistant disease, you're obligated to understand the basics of symptomatic supportive care, clearly involving palliative medicine colleagues 
eminently reasonable, but at the end of the day, uh, you're the one that has to manage the patient. And with that, I will turn things back over to Dr. Gerard. Thanks, Dr. Dreiser. So take us through a patient uh, with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, worsening pain. Uh, when you see this patient in clinic, starting them, them on opioids, what sort of uh, the dosing that you think about, uh, the types of uh, approaches that you use initially? Sure. One of the first things that's really important is to actually use the 0 to 10 scale. As you know, we're, we're all familiar with it. And interestingly enough, there's pretty good data to say it's reproducible. So I'm going to quantify and I'm going to put into my medical record what the patient tells me. Uh, I'm also going to figure out whether the patient is uh, waking up at night or not. Almost always, you're going to want to start with an immediate release drug, meaning sustained release drugs should not be the initial uh, pain medication because you need to get a sense of the opioid requirement. Uh, whether you use drugs like um, oxycodone or morphine, it's really just important to get skills in one. You ask the patient to initially dose every three to four hours, keeping a pain diary. So again, when did I take the pain medicine? Rating the pain when they took it, writing it down so that when they call your coordinator or your nurse to update how they're doing, there's tangible information that you can make judgments. For many patients, after three to five days where you get steady states of the dose, you're gonna figure out what the opioid requirement is. And if a patient's dosing every three to four hours, that's the time to consider using a sustain-release opioid. And there are sustain-release formulations of both of the drugs that I mentioned. Again, asking the patient, taking the total dose requirement, dividing it in half, and starting sustain-release, adding breakthrough medication. Um, for those who are not facile in this, it does sound a little intimidating. It's not intimidating. It's just something that you have to do. You've got to get comfortable with it. You've got to manage proactively the side effects of the drugs so that the patient the patient benefits, your staff is not inundated with, um, uh, with sort of frantic calls, and the patient uh, ultimately gets pain relief. What about uh, the bowel regimen that you start them on? So typically uh, what many of us will do is something akin to the following. First we talk about whatever their hydration schedule to get, to get on it. Typically I'll start a patient on one to two senna a day. Um, most palliative medicine docs have moved away from using stool softeners, so I'm going to use a couple of centers a day. I give them instructions to say, if you go more than 48 hours with a bowel movement, you're going to call. We then would tend to add a drug like Miralax. Uh, we try to avoid using pure laxatives. We're trying to prevent opioid-related constipation. Good. Thank you. So now we'll move on to our next speaker. Uh, this is Dr. Kelly Stratton, who will be talking about treatment sequencing, immunotherapy, and future approaches. Dr. Stratton. Thank you. Um, so these are my disclosures. And uh, just some acknowledgments that some of them were created and presented previously. Our learning objectives for tonight are to identify the approved immunotherapies for catcher-resistant prostate cancer We'll both describe the indication and contraindications for recommending immunotherapy, and we'll look at the efficacy of the approved immunotherapies for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. We'll also look at evaluating treatment sequencing of, a few, of approved agents uh, and looking at how we can sequence agents based off their indication and side effect profiles. And finally, we'll look at some future approaches to managing castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So here is a diagram of the landscape of immunotherapy for prostate cancer. 
And what this is showing is that, that uh, as cells become malignant and they transform, there's an interaction between the cancer cells and the immune system. If the immune system is able to eradicate the cells, then they're eliminated and there is no more cancer. However, if the cancer is able to reach an equilibrium with the immune system, then the cancer will uh, persist. And if it's able to evade the immune system, then the cancer can grow. And so taking advantage of these interactions with the immune system may help us treat patients. Specifically, what we see are agents like cipulucal-T, uh, immune uh, treatments like ipilimumab, and even Prosvac have been looked at uh, for agents that can benefit patients with metastatic prostate cancer. However, there's only one agent that has been approved, and that's cipulucil T. Uh, cipulucil T is a uh, active uh, autologous uh, uh, cancer vaccine. It uses uh, uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells, specifically uh, including antigen-presenting cells, and activates those cells against the uh, tumor antigen prostatic acid phosphatase. Um, and so that activates the cells uh, to uh, attack and identify and attack prostate cancer. So cipulucil T was uh, uh, based off of uh, three treatments, uh, and the trial that brought it to approval for prostate cancer was the IMPACT trial, a phase three trial that looked at men with low burden metastatic disease, and specifically men who had minimal symptoms from their metastasis. Uh, the trial was run in 512 men. They were randomized two to one, and there was some crossover. So here's a, a diagram of the IMPACT trial. And uh, what is uh, evident here is, is that the patients who were in the placebo arm, some of them were offered uh, cryopreserved cipulucil T when they progressed. Uh, this is often called FROVENGE because it was frozen uh, uh, cells that were uh, taken at the time the patient underwent leukophoresis. They were activated against the prostatic acid phosphatase, and then they were cryopreserved awaiting the patient's uh, 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 progression. And so the men who were in the active treatment arm received uh, cipulucil T, and 64% of men in the placebo arm ultimately received cipulucil T. This is uh, uh, side effects that were noted in the IMPACT trial. And cipulucil T is generally well tolerated. Adverse events were typically chills, fever, headache, and hypertension. And these were generally mild. Here are the results of the IMPACT trial showing a significant uh, uh, survival benefit from cipulucil T, a 4.1-month uh, uh, improvement from 21.7 to 25.8 months. You'll see here that uh, that benefit was not initially seen. So in the first six months, the plots look very similar. But over time, there's a separation. And patients who received cipulucil T did significantly better than those who received placebo. What, is, what uh, needs to be kept in mind is, is that the patients who received placebo, again, 64% of them received uh, cryopreserved agent. And so uh, this uh, graph really tries to evaluate whether those patients may have uh, done better than if they would not have 
uh, ultimately receive that cryopreserved agent. And so uh, these are survival curves that are, are really trying to look at, well, if that, if that agent that was cryopreserved was not active at all, then the difference in overall survival would be around four months, what we saw. Uh, but if that agent was as, just as, uh, as beneficial as the sibucil T agent, then in reality what we saw was about an 8.1 month survival and overall survival, excuse me, improvement in overall survival. So it, it's really the fact that patients in the placebo arm ultimately received the treatment at progression is something that we have to consider when looking at the results of the sibucil T study. And many people uh, criticize uh, immunotherapy because there is no real PSA response that we are, are looking for. And part of that may be the way that this treatment works, that it, it utilizes uh, the immune system to try and treat the prostate cancer. And so this graph shows tumor burden over time. And there's a couple different points on here. If left untreated, A represents where tumor burden just continues to increase over time. Ultimately, the patient uh, is overwhelmed with the cancer. The plot B shows a patient undergoing chemotherapy. So a cytotoxic chemotherapy that initially reduces tumor burden, but then the tumor becomes resistant to the chemotherapy and it begins to grow back. And you'll note that the, that the growth rate is the same after the chemotherapy as it is before. And so the patient lives longer, uh, but ultimately succumbs. And then plot C is, is a patient treated with immunotherapy. So there is no cell death with the immunotherapy, but there's a change in the trajectory of the growth, and it ultimately leads to uh, the patient surviving even longer than chemotherapy. Now this is just a graphic that helps us understand why PSA doesn't change. Uh, with immunotherapy. Uh, and so it, this graph uh, shows why immunotherapy may be more effective if utilized earlier because, again, we're changing the growth trajectory. So if we interact with the patient and we change that growth of, uh, earlier, then that change in the slope uh, allows the patient to live longer even still. However, if we waited until late in the disease course, if you change the growth characteristic, the patient would still ultimately succumb quickly. And so uh, the, the question is, should we treat early and, and can we treat aggressively? Could we even create a benefit beyond what we would see otherwise? And so this graph represents the combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And although we don't do this uh, concurrently, you could see how cytotoxic chemotherapy reduces the the, the tumor burden, and then immunotherapy alters the growth characteristics. So you could potentially get uh, even compounded benefit from incorporating immunotherapy. And, and we did see this in the IMPACT trial. So when we looked at patients in subgroups based off of PSA, those with lower PSAs tended to have uh, a, a larger difference in overall survival. So those with less than 22 had 13 months difference in overall survival versus those with, who were in the hundreds who only had a few months uh, benefit in overall survival. And so as opposed to the other treatments for prostate cancer, 
we would expect that immunotherapy works better earlier, and that is what we see when this graph represents uh, the, the, the median uh, survival of several different treatments, docetaxel, cabazitaxel, abiraterone, and zalutamide. In each of these uh, studies, patients who had higher PSAs tended to benefit more than those with lower PSAs. But if we compare this to cipulosal T, the patients who have a lower baseline PSA do better. And so that, that is uh, uh, showing us that changing the growth characteristics sooner may lead to better outcomes. And this is uh, phase four data from the PROCEED study showing that urologists and medical oncologists have started to pick up on this, and they are prescribing cipulosal T earlier in the disease course with lower PSA levels, and, and that is uh, somewhat of a, of a response to this um, benefit earlier in the disease course. So if, you, if you're considering how cipulosal T may uh, compare to other agents, when we look at docetaxel and cabazitaxel, the improvements in median overall survival in, in those studies were on the order of two to three months, abiraterone around four months. Cipulosal T fits in uh, in a very similar fashion with a survival benefit of 4.1 months. So on par, it seems that the benefit is uh, similar to other agents. And so the AUA guidelines uh, recommend the use of cipulosal T for patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer who have a good performance status. Uh, and so this is uh, index patient two. And so when you see that asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, these are patients who either have no pain or have pain that can be controlled without narcotics. And that's a key point. If a patient requires narcotics, then they would uh, therefore not be a good candidate for cipulosal T. Specifically, the guidelines uh, state that, that you should not uh, recommend for symptomatic patients or those with a poor performance status. So in conclusion, cipulosal T potentially may be underutilized uh, due to concern about its uh, uh, benefits, uh, specifically that lack of a PSA response. But we uh, know that patients benefit with overall survival, and so we need to consider that for patients who may be candidates. Um, and we should also consider that there may be new immunotherapy options coming along. There are certainly trials trying to combine agents and use it in a new adjuvant or adjuvant fashion. And that brings us to treatment sequencing, which is something that's very important as patients uh, move through uh, the various treatments that are available for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. With new drug approvals, the, the prior uh, treatment landscape has really changed, and so many of these graphs that, you, that we've seen before outlining uh, the PSA response and castrate-resistance and how to incorporate agents, it's very hard to conceptualize the current landscape in those old models. So specifically, uh, this treatment uh, sequencing uh, map, we see, you know, for clinically localized disease, sometimes we uh, may incorporate abiraterone based off of the results of the stampede trial um, when patients are undergoing radiation therapy for high-risk disease. For patients who have clinically 
uh, metastatic but non-castrate disease, those uh, patients may now receive androgen deprivation with either docetaxel or abiraterone in addition to androgen deprivation therapy. And for patients with M0 non-metastatic castrate resistance, now we have apalutamide and imzalutamide. And each of these new treatments, therefore, changes the potential options in the first, second, and third line as you go back and, and look as a patient moves through the treatment sequence. So this is where it can be very difficult uh, to weigh the options, and, and this is where we need to consider how we're going to present these options so the patients can maximize the benefit. When we look at these uh, different treatments, we may want to change the treatment or, or utilize the treatment based off of its mechanism of action. And so the, the landscape uh, and, and the variety allows people to potentially, for instance, take a break from chemotherapy and utilize a different agent or uh, change from one agent to another based on the tolerance and based off the side effect profile. And we see this very often where patients may want to initially avoid chemotherapy, but then when they progress on the first-line agent, they may switch to uh, docetaxel or cabazitaxel as, a, as an option thereafter. Certainly, many clinicians uh, wonder, well, when, when faced with the option of either enzalutamide or abiraterone, which order should we use? And uh, it, the, the, the data uh, makes it where there's not a great clear-cut choice. But we do know from some stu prior studies that abiraterone after enzalutamide may have just a, a modest response. Uh, reduction of PSA greater than 5% is probably between 3 and 13% of patients. Uh, whereas enzalutamide after abiraterone, there's thoughts that maybe that has a better outcome with PSA reductions in the order of 12 to 40%. So when you're considering these agents and how a patient may proceed from one treatment to another, uh, the, the response may be something to consider. Certainly, we uh, have discussed retreatment with docetaxel earlier. So anytime a patient was on one treatment, potentially docetaxel, uh, and then they have to stop after a set number of cycles, uh, then you could maybe consider that again as a, as, a, as a next line of treatment once they begin to progress. And so patients who have initial good response uh, who go on and, and then progress may uh, elect to undergo retreatment. Uh, we've seen that, that financial limitations uh, can also lead patients to need to switch treatments. So, for instance, a patient may be told by their insurance company that they need to switch from abiraterone to enzalutamide. And if a patient ultimately makes one of those switches, then as they progress later down the road, you, you could consider retreatment. And certainly, we want to always uh, be mindful of maximizing the indication. So this would be prioritizing agents that may be restricted later when disease progresses. Um, from the perspective of uh, immunotherapy, for instance, cipulosal T, patients must be minimally symptomatic. So the time to use that not only would be when the disease burden is lower, as evidenced by a lower PSA, but also before the patient be, uh, requires narcotic pain medicine. Uh, similarly, radium-223, uh, you want to be able to offer that before patients develop visceral metastasis. So radium is, is, uh, is an agent that would be used, a radiopharmaceutical agent that would be used 
when patients have symptomatic bony metastasis, but you would want to be able to use that before they developed any visceral metastasis. And then finally, there are several new approaches that we're looking at. Many of them are, are centered around combinations, so either looking at androgen receptor targeting, targeting combinations or adding novel uh, anti-androgens to chemotherapy regimens. We're also looking at genetic testing and how germline and somatic mutations may be exploited in the treatment of advanced prostate cancer. So new drug combinations, uh, there are several studies out, uh, ongoing. The Alliance study is evaluating enzalutamide versus enzalutamide plus abiraterone. There's also a phase three study that is set to explore abiraterone plus or minus apalutamide. And then we know the, the PEACE-1 study is, is looking at androgen deprivation plus docetaxel plus or minus abiraterone. So adding on abiraterone to docetaxel in patients who uh, are undergoing docetaxel treatment. Uh, and then uh, additional future approaches, genetic testing. So looking for BRCA mutations, uh, considering genetic counseling for patients with advanced prostate cancer, and also looking at tumors and somatic mutations. Homologous recombination repair mutations may allow for patients to receive PARP inhibitors in the future. Um, and now pembrolizumab has an agnostic approval for, patient, for tumors that have MSI high or, uh, or MMR mutations. So as we move forward, uh, there's the potential that genetic, both somatic and germline, may lead to uh, additional treatments. And that's something to keep in mind as we continue to treat patients. Um, so in conclusion, treatment sequencing is tailored to the patient. We want to maximize their options while managing side effects. Uh, we want to consider these future studies and how these combinations may be useful. We certainly are, are, uh, are looking at patients who've had docetaxel earlier and earlier. Those patients may benefit from retreatment or we should at least keep that in mind as we uh, move them on to new agents. And urologists are really, they're an integral part because we see patients in so many of these different areas uh, along the, the treatment continuum. So it's important for us to, to be mindful that our decisions when we treat patients early may affect the potential for them to receive treatments later, specifically immunotherapy or bone-targeted agents and whether the patient has symptoms or asymptomatic. Great. Thank you, Dr. Stratton. I'll have uh, both our speakers join us. So, Dr. Stratton, there's a question from the audience. Are there studies in the offering using Ciplocil T earlier in the disease uh, than in more advanced symptomatic, uh, asymptomatic, metastatic, castration-resistant prostate cancer? Uh, yeah, there, there are studies. Uh, the results are are not available yet, but Cipulosal uh, T and immunotherapy in general is being moved all the way back to localized prostate cancer. So, um, mm -hmm. it, so we have many studies. There was a, a recent study of PROSVAC which didn't show a benefit. So, um, you know, immunotherapy is being evaluated in multiple different malignancies, and certainly in advanced prostate cancer, it's being looked at in all different uh, segments of the population. Great. Thanks for thanks for addressing that uh, prost prostavac question. The uh, so that currently is not an FDA approved medication based on that failed trial. That's right. 
Good. So, uh, so Dr. Dreiser, in your advanced uh, prostate cancer care clinic, uh, if you have a patient uh, with uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer, a family history of BRCA2, BRCA2 mutations, is this changing your approach? How, how would you approach this patient? So uh, that patient, certainly, uh, but I would uh, tell you that my practice has changed pretty dramatically in the last year. Essentially, all patients with castrate metastatic prostate cancer are being uh, tested for somatic mutations, and a patient who presents with de novo metastatic disease uh, typically assaying both germline as well as somatic mutations. Um, I tend to use liquid biopsies because, of course, most of our patients actually have bone-only disease. Uh, because anywhere from, you know, 25% of patients may have homologous recombinant repair mutations. The, probably the more important ones are BRCA1, 2, and ATM, and that may be 10 or 15% of the population. You know, we're on the cusp of developing targeted therapies, PARPs for these um, sort of subsets. So my practice has changed, and I think over the next, certainly as soon as a PARP is approved, um, how we test and who we test is going to change pretty dramatically. Good. Thank you. So as far as sequencing, for a, for a patient failing abiraterone, what sort of criteria do you use as far as deciding whether to go on to um, something, docetaxel, or perhaps considering uh, another oral agent like enzalutamide? So I'm going to assume that we're talking about abiraterone in the metastatic castration-resistant setting. Correct. So the answer to that depends on a number of factors, most of them clinical factors. So number one, um, is the patient progressing biochemically or does the patient have symptoms associated with progression? If it's a symptomatic progression, <clears throat> as uh, Dr. Stratton outlined, the crossover response rate from one drug to the other, ABI to ENZA, ENZA to ABI, is uh, not particularly good. And you really want to use a drug that's likely to provide somebody symptomatic benefits. So a symptomatic patient is likely to get radium if they have primary bone disease or docetaxel. Now, if it's a patient who's progressing biochemically, doesn't really have disease-related symptoms, not a candidate for a trial, I think it's very reasonable to try enzalutamide. You're going to know in six weeks whether there's a response based on a PSA. Good. Thank you. So we have another question from our audience. Uh, there were several studies that had shown uh, off-label that if you gave abiraterone with food, uh, you could actually give a lower dose than the 100 or 1,000 milligrams daily, uh, and that this could potentially be used to decrease the cost uh, associated with the medication. Now, are you using this at all in your practices? Well, so this, the uh, question refers to a study that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology a couple of months ago. Um, and I think, interestingly enough, it generated a fair amount of back and forth in the letters that followed. So I don't routinely do that, but I think that it, that is certainly not unreasonable. Um, uh, as some of our audience may or may not be aware, abiraterone is likely to be generic within the next few months. Now. Even generic, it's likely to be expensive. Um, so for some patients, carefully monitored. Remember, the problem with food effect and the issue of lower doses, that requires patients to be pretty constant about how they take the drug and in, in what way um, they're sort of treating themselves in a fed state. Um, so it's not for the faint of heart to do this. I think it takes a pretty sophisticated patient to, to sort of pull this off. 
Very good. So there's another question. Any experience prescribing uh, pembrolizumab for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer post-dosetaxol and post-abiraterone or enzalutamide? Well, uh, as Dr. Stratton referred in his remarks, um, patients with MSI high, um, which represents maybe 2 to 3 percent of castrate metastatic prostate cancer patients, uh, pembrolizumab is an approved therapy. I've treated one patient in that subset. Um, I would caution for routine use of Pembro across the board. You know, we've had data recently presented at ASCO that tells us that the checkpoint inhibitors are not as dramatically active as they are in other urologic cancers. So routine use of Pembro off-label is not something I would suggest. There are plenty of trials that you can send your patients for, but certainly if they're MSI high, I think that would be a very appropriate therapeutic intervention. Very good. So thank you all again for your attention, and again, special thanks to our speakers.